Hey everyone, this is Ron Stefanski, co-host of Disrupt Ed, the public library edition. And I am joined or rejoined today by Nick Byrne, Queens Library. In our welcome back to the show, Nick, it was great having you last time. And as you know, and as you heard, for those of you who heard uh, from Nick in our first episode, he is a man about getting shit done. And it's just so impressive to me uh, how his library staff kind of came into it and just rallied during uh, the pandemic and actually fortified and in some cases augmented in other cases just exploded and increased the range of service that the library provides to the Queens community. And again, remember, we're talking about a community that's uh, over uh, from over 150 countries, 50% of the, the population of Queens comes to us from outside of the United States, speaking over 150 languages. And this is a library that's been dedicated to delivering programming on a personal, on a community, and on a bilingual, trilingual, polyglot world that we have here. So, Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Ron. Thank you. Yes. No, it's great to have you. And, you know, I, our last conversation prompts me to ask you, you know, you were talking when you mentioned that it comes at a cost that you're providing broadband to more people and, and wireless devices that they can take out of the library. You know, that's not the only thing you're paying for. You're paying for staff. You're paying for a lot of other programming services. There are a lot of costs that go into uh, running 66 branches of the Queens Library. So I guess the question to start us off this time is how do you keep a staff like that and engage, you know, an engaged group? And did the pandemic, you know, and other essential services, medical care and health care and schools, we have people who really got burned out because the demands on them were infinite and they're one person. And so we, we saw a lot of mental health issues, a lot of self-care issues from people that were just burned out because they were giving 24-7. So walk me through, what did that look like in the public library and what are you facing now as, as you return to some level, not complete, but some level of normalcy? So thank you again, Ron. Um, I said, you know, I, I say this often is that the um, the health and wellness of our staff is the first is the first priority because if we don't care for our staff, we can't then you know look out for other people. We can't build from there. And so um, I'd like just to talk to that first because every Tuesday morning we actually when we're actually open to the public, we don't open on Tuesday mornings. It's a tradition that we've had for a few decades where we our closed Tuesday mornings that we use just for professional development. And so we had that culture before the pandemic. And so we continued that with doing in-services, as we call them, on Tuesday mornings. And many of the in-services at the beginning were really dealing with the health and wellness and mental health and wellness of our staff. And really to check in, what is it that you can do? How do you stay engaged? I mean, our staff was, you know, for the first few months, they were quarantined at home too. And, you know, some of our staff live alone. Some of our staff are caring for other people who were sick and who sadly passed. And so, you know, how do we, you know, worry about our staff and try to keep them not just engaged in work, that's separate. How do we keep them healthy and mentally healthy first? Once we really, you know, kept in contact with people, and this is a good opportunity to say, 
that we have a, a registered nurse on staff. We've just been lucky to have that for over 20 years. No one has been no one has been busier for the last two and a half years than our health and than our health and safety team. And they would make the phone calls. Um, they would um, you know they would check in with everyone. You know, even myself included, and I was engaged, you know, at an administrative level, but I got a phone call every once in a while that said, how are you doing? Is everything okay? And, you know, and our, you know, I will also say that our president and CEO, Dennis Walcott, he would, you know, he called every single employee who had lost somebody. So when I found out that someone had lost their spouse, their parent, a child, um, you know, he made sure he was like, get me that phone number. And so, you know, it's things like that that kept the library together. I don't want to say as a family, we're here because we work, right? But right. kept us together. But it's a professional community. It it's is a, a professional dedicated family, professional in community. essence. It's a professional sure. family. And I think that's a good way to look at it. Um, and it kept us together so that we could move forward. So, you know, in July, Another way of, you know, trying to re-engage our staff, you know, our, our public in person was also to, um, you know, we had to go back to work. And, you know, we had the pressure of the city who is our, you know, provides 90% of our funding and who continued to provide our funding so that all of our staff were able to continue to get paid. So it was our obligation to make sure everyone was engaged. And so by July, when other people were still at home, you know, working remotely, libraries came back into service. Our library came back in July, which when you think about it, you know, uh, in March, being in the epicenter of the pandemic here in Queens and opening in July seems very fast. But we also knew that we had a mission. And that's one of the things that's important to keep in mind about the people that work in libraries, whether they're custodians clerical staff, librarians, administrators, we are mission driven. And so it really was a way of engaging the mission. Now, in order to keep our staff, you know, our staff, you know, to, to do it slowly, we were not going to just open the door because we still had to learn what does that look like? And so we opened seven libraries in July. And what it was, it was a, it was a pickup service. It was a to-go service. So our customers would go on our website um, or a call, request a book, and then it would be available for us, for them to be able to pick up on the shelf. So they would come into our library and we were socially distant. We had capacity limits of how many people can come in. There was no hanging out. It was come into the library, uh, come into the lobby of the library, get your requested book, go to our self-checkout machines, check them out and leave. And so, you know, for our staff, we initially had them working two out of five days. So it wasn't coming back for five days. So because we were only open at seven locations and then 14 and then 28, we do, we did it very slowly so that two people, you know, so that you work two days a week and then people from another branch work two days a week. And then, you know, we were able to extend our staff so that everyone worked two days a week. And then as we built up, we got to about 28 places. And then we said, okay, it's now time to work three days a week. But we never jumped into it without making sure, are we okay? Because it was scary to take public transportation to interact sure. with people. So we yeah, even getting to and from the library is a, 
is a different proposition in we, Queens. We spent millions of dollars, millions of dollars on PPE, just like a lot of other locations, but we had to use it. We were, you know, we had plexiglass that we put up. So our staff, it was almost like in a fishbowl. It's almost funny until it's not funny. You know, we had masks, of course. We imposed masks on our public for a very long time, for our staff and our public for a very long time. Only up until the, uh, I believe earlier this year, did we finally, uh, you know, when we came out of this past winter, did we say masks are optional? Let me tell you, people gave us a really hard time. The public gave us a really hard, they would come in yelling and screaming. But the thing is, it fell back to our staff's health and wellness is the most important thing. So if we're going to ask you to just put a little mask on while you're in here for a few minutes, then it's not too much to ask to be able to provide the services that you're looking for. And so it was a slow build to in-person, to, to coming back in person, while at the same time being able to continue to provide those virtual services, more eBooks, more virtual programming. Because when we first opened, it was just picking up books. It wasn't even allowed to sit down in the library. Nick, let me ask you this. You know, when you look at it now over the span of the last couple of years and you look at the staff, um, you know, obviously some people succumb to mental health challenges or burnout challenges or that. How would you describe your track record in retaining um, essential librarians that have been with you and um, keeping the group together and how much of the pandemic impacted the staff as you now have it and as you're now configured? So, um that's an excellent question because, you know, once the pandemic started and we realized we're kind of in this for the long haul, we didn't know what our budget situation was. As I said, 90% of our funding comes from the city, about 5% from the state, and then you know, a little bit from the federal government and some grants. But we didn't know what the state of the city's budget was going to be, and they weren't really showing us what it was. I mean, they, they continued to fund us, but we didn't know, you know, that our funding was going to be you know, cut by a very large percentage. And so as people left, as they will, we have a thousand employee, full-time employees at the Queens Public Library. People naturally leave. They get other jobs. They, you know, they retire. Yeah, they move. And so we did see the traditional number of retirements. It wasn't even that more. It was a little bit more than usual. The problem is we weren't hiring at that time because we didn't know what the future would be. So what ended up happening is we had more retirements um, and people, you know, would leave the library system. And, you know, there was a, you know, it wasn't really, you know, we say the great resignation, but that's not what it was. Many of our employees who are able to get better jobs ultimately got better jobs, which is great. But that means that, but if we didn't backfill their job, which we didn't for two years, there was a deficit of the amount of staff that we had from the beginning of the pandemic to when we finally opened all of our libraries for full service, we realized, wait a minute, we are over a hundred people down than we were when we started. You know, Nick, it's really interesting to hear you talk about the workforce piece of it because you're running a mission-driven organization. And we hear oftentimes, especially among the millennial generation, that people are interested in working for organizations that are mission-focused. And that's where a lot of the folks through the great uh, resignation have moved, as they've said. I'm going to take a step back. I'm going to consider where my talents can be used to social good. And one of those places is clearly the library. But just like any business, what I'm hearing you say 
is that the greatest barriers to growth in the library are not unlike the greatest barriers to growth in our business sector. And that's getting and keeping and retaining and supporting and developing really great talent. And I have to hand it to you. You guys do a lot of professional development. You have a lot of librarians that have come out of Queens to go around you know, the country. And while it's great for librarianship overall, it's great for public libraries, you are sometimes a feeding ground or a hiring ground for a lot of other people across the country. So we have to give you some some snaps for that because you do perform a service to public libraries in that very critical respect because a lot of people look to your librarians and the kind of experiences broad and deep that they have that equip them to take on, you know, leadership roles in other uh, library organizations. So I'll say two things to that. One is, sadly in this country, sectors that are mission-driven, education, healthcare, libraries, it's really hard for us to compete with the public, with the private sector when it comes to salaries. And, you know, that's a whole nother conversation about, you know, that what you have to sacrifice to work, you know, for a mission-driven organization that serves the public good. You know, that's, that's, a, that's another conversation, but it's something that we have to deal with that, you know, that the, pub, the private sector does compensate by and large more. They might not give you that, that good feeling, you know, of, you know, really serving your community, but that's why people on an individual basis have to balance what drives them. Well, let me jump in here, Nick. I think what's interesting about what you're saying and what it's going to take is more resources, more capital resources and continued support from uh, the Queens community and uh, local government as well as state and federal. You know, I'm, I, you know, it's interesting, Nick, because as you were saying that, I was thinking back to 2008 when you and I really got immersed in work together, and it was during the great um, resi- you know, recession. And we talked about the fact that libraries were just gutted financially, and you were shutting back on the number of hours, the amount of service you were, you know, you were delivering, and the number of people that you were keeping. And it started out with just um, attrition and letting people come off the payroll, and then even more drastic as we went through um, that. And it's interesting that that conversation is an important one, um, and it's important one that I think we should have on this show because. I want to make sure people know how important public libraries are and that, you know, just because you love a public library doesn't mean it ends there. It really begins there. You need to be volunteering for your library. You need to be going to events with your public library. You need to be talking to local government and those who fund the library about the importance of your community treasure, this public library, because otherwise it goes away. You know, Nick, I'll just bring into this conversation the story that we had. Uh, You weren't able to join us at the Public Library Association event back in March, but we were with a number of librarians, John Zabel from Los Angeles, David Leonard from Boston, um, uh, Kent from, uh, or uh, I'm sorry, Lance from uh, Kent, and then uh, Stephen Potter, who recently retired from uh, Mid-Continent Public Library. Interesting story there. Most recently, the library board itself voted to contract the service provided by the library. I mean, what do you make of that? That just seems, you know, the the people that are advocating for this library 
literally gathered as a group and said, you know what? We don't want all your money. We want to give it back in dollars and cents. And so they gave back about 50 cents a person, but they have to now revamp extensive social and, and community services. I mean, what do you make of that? Is that is that something we're going to see more of, or is that just one of those unusual circumstances that we just have to hold our hands and say, wow? It's uh, a good question because, um, I, I, quite honestly, I don't know. And that's one of the things that people, you know, that we learned from the pandemic is predicting the future is not something that any of us can really do. But what is, you know, two things that are related to this is it's important for for people to understand not only where our funding comes, and I've said that most of it comes from the city of New York to give us money. We are a not-for-profit organization. We are not a city agency. Um, and most of our funding, vast majority of our funding goes to paying the staff at our library. And so, and on top of that, we don't get books for free. We pay for books. Ebooks are four times more expensive than print books. You know, we pay decent benefits. We pay into the state pension system. You know, we paid, I just said, millions of dollars in PPE. So our greatest resource is our staff. Our greatest, you know, after that, our greatest asset is our good name. We have been in these communities, these 66 now communities that we have been in for 127 years. So we take our reputation very, very seriously and our good name. And so I, I don't fear for us to outsource what we do because I don't think our community would stand for it. In fact, when the city threatens to, you know, cut us because, you know, they need to prioritize, it's not that there's not enough money. It's where do the priorities go with the money that we have? And so we have our community that stands up and says, wait a minute. I need our libraries to be open six days a week, not five days a week. What am I going to do on Saturday when the library is closed? This is an important resource. And so we have a responsibility all the time. And I just said, we have lots of immigration. Since the last census, our population has gone up 10%. So that's 10% of our population that wasn't here 10 years ago. If we made the case of why the library is important 10 years ago, those people never heard it. And so we have a constant conversation to say, listen, you might think of us as a nice place for books and for and for programming for kids, but you know, you know, who's going to help you if with it's a valued community service? We who's have to get the financial job? support. Who's going to help right. you, you know, with the English? Who's going to help you, you know, with your teens to you know engage in maker spaces and positive youth development? Who's going to be there to you know be able to provide this these programs for all ages under one roof in a safe environment? Who is doing that? in whether it's our community or communities around the country, who is providing all of this, you know, and it's not free. This is somebody's money, like somebody's money. I think you're making a really strong point and I'm going to add to it. You know, for those of you listening or watching us, this is Disrupt Ed. I'm your host, Ron Stefanski, and I'm joined in another episode with Nick Byrne, the chief librarian for Queens Library. And we're talking about the future of libraries and the requirement incumbent upon all of us as community members to stand up and visibly support our public library system because it's not a given. It's not a nice to have. 
It is an essential service. When I think back to my own start with public libraries, and whenever I hear someone talking about technology in the libraries, I always think, you know what? One of the best technologies that was rolled out by public libraries in urban areas was the technology I saw as a kid, and that was, we're going to take the library to you. And so the Detroit Public Library System started a very robust bookmobile system. That's how I became acquainted with the public library. I started getting books every Tuesday. Uh, we'd walk uh, three quarters of a mile. And I did, I did for the benefit of my kids who doubted me, I did clock that distance. And it was actually um, just shy of a mile. And we did walk there gleefully, I might add. And we got books. And when they didn't have the book we were looking for, they would order it and bring it back the next week. And so that kind of tech, that was technology when you think about it uh, to the 60s and 70s, as the library started rethinking itself and saying, you know what, how do we get to our communities? It's not just them coming to us, it's us going to them. I think that's such an important part of this conversation. And, you know, we think of bookmobiles as something in rural environments. We use, you know, mobile libraries right now because oftentimes if a library is closed for renovation, then that neighborhood's library is now closed. Oftentimes people who don't have the ability or the access to be able to go down to their normal, to their regular library might not go to, you know, a mile and a half away. A lot of people don't have cars in New York City, you know, um, but they might not. And so we're providing bookmobile service within, you know, within our own urban environment. Um, and it is very important because what does it do? It keeps that connection to people and connection is super important. Well, I think that's really an important point to be made here. And I think it's also an important point to be made that your community members may have heard about the essential nature of the public library, but we have to keep telling that story. And I hope through this program and others with other public librarians, um, we get that message out because it's so critical uh, for our communities and the strength of our communities and the service that you provide to a broad expanse of the population. Um, Looking ahead, where do you see the headwinds for public libraries now? Is it on the funding scene? Is that where we're going to start to um, see some headwinds? The answer to that has always been yes. I mean, we can look back to the 70s when there was a financial crisis in New York City and realize we had to cut libraries, in some cases, three days a week. So this has always been a problem. This is not a new problem. But the question is, how do we get creative to be able to stem that before it even starts. And, you know, there's two ways to deal with that. It's our customer and it's our stakeholders. So, uh, you know, our funders. So for our customers, relevance is the thing that will make them stand up for us when we, when we, um, when we could be in danger of reduced funding to go to those, you know, uh, to the people that fund us to say, listen, this is worth, you know, our communal money. This is worth, this is a priority of where we're going to spend money. This is one of the priorities. But one of the other things is, is quite honestly, we have to hear what the priorities are for our, for the people who fund us. And so if the city, you know, says, listen, you know, we should go to the city and say, what's important to you? And over the last couple of years, even during the pandemic, the city has, you know, the New York City has come to us and say, listen, could you help us get outreach for census information. You know, they only have X number of people to be able to go out and do canvassing. 
um, or, to, or to get the word out that it's important. So we're using our good name because people trust us. And libraries are still one of those very trusted um, institutions. And so we went out during the census time to say, census is important. This is what you need to do for the census. And we did lots of outreach on behalf of the city because ultimately it affected us. We showed an increase in census. An increase in census is money from the federal government. It's money from the state. It's, it's representation from your elected officials. It really, there is, you know, there is another side to just filling out that form. And so that is education. That is, that's education. When it comes to voter registration, it's the same thing. So things that you might not think of the public library doing and making, you know, and being able to push out that information, it's more than just pushing out and giving somebody a piece of paper. It's explaining what does this mean for your community and what does this mean for the library that you happen to love? Yeah, no, I think that's extremely important. And I want to go, you know, uh, you've been listening to Disrupt Ed, Public Library Edition with Nick Byrne, Chief Librarian from Queens and myself, your host, Ron Stefanski. Before we wrap this session, uh, Nick, I want to touch on one of the things you just said and kind of close out with this. And that is, uh, the library is a trusted resource. Since the past two elections, never has that been more important. When you have public servants talking about fake news, when you talk about the depolarization going on out there, the library remains a trusted resource of vetted, qualified facts and information. Um, Talk to us a little bit about that and give us your thoughts before we close out on how we can continue to support the libraries as a trusted resource of information for our communities. So first of all, the library, you know, other than your tax dollar, doesn't ask for very much. And for us, we are in every single community where it's a place that people can come in. We don't ask who you are. We don't ask for any ID. We don't, you know, you can come in and just sit all day if you really want to, or you can engage with us. And so right away, we try to be welcoming and welcome everyone that comes in. And so, you know, we have staff trainings that, you know, tell our staff, listen, you know, we don't want to be judgmental with anybody. Um, people come to us with their most important questions of what they have right now. And it might not seem, you know, important but it's important for that person. So if a kid wants, hey, you know, I'm looking for some cheats for a gaming, you know, uh, my new gaming console, like what, or I need uh, resume help. For us, we don't say one is more important than the other. And so we have, and, and you know, our librarians, and this is the other important thing to keep in mind is that we have people that are professional librarians with master's degrees. That's not nothing. They, this is a profession, not a job. And it's a calling. Because people come up, like I say, with these very important questions. They In Queens, everyone looks different than everybody else. And so to be able to interact with someone that's not judgmental, that you know, might not agree with you on certain things, but is going to fairly listen to you, hear what you have to say, answer your question in a, you know, in a factual way, and you know, be able to provide that in a professional manner, um, is, you know, is the kind of reputation that we have. You know, that's a great note on which to sum up our episode today. I think, Nick, 
um, you remind me through 20 years of friendship and partnership and collaboration, what a truly, truly amazing public servant you are. And I really have to give you snaps for your staff and the vision that you and Dennis have brought to the administration of Queens Library. You know, the community has a real treasure there and a real vital community service that reaches so many people. So I think we may have to get this show on the road and get others talking about it because you make a very important point upon which to close. And that is great libraries that are open to all, that are freely delivered to all, require our civic and community support. And that means getting in front of everyone that's in a position to help fund the library. Uh, it's always great to talk with you. It is always great to see you. And um, you just always make me feel good about my public library and public libraries generally whenever we have a chance to talk. So this has been Disrupt Ed. Thank you, Nick, for joining us. Thank you very and much. I, and I hope we have another chance. In the meantime, listen for upcoming episodes from public librarians on the Disrupt Ed public library edition. You're going to hear a lot more great stuff. Stay tuned. Thank you.